0: I'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians today, picking up in chapter 1, verse 5, reading to the end of that chapter, verse 12. As you're turning there, let me offer to you a uh, brief explanation and a slight audible. Uh, early in the week, I was very certain that it would take me at least two sessions, two weeks to get through this passage. Uh, and that is the course that I set out on. Later in the week, I was feeling much more confident that we could get through all of it in one sermon. And so I sent a slight correction uh, into Dana, and the bulletin was printed. And even later in the week, I realized, no, 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 it's going to take us two. Uh, so, so we're back uh, to where we started. But a different breakdown this week. So if, if you're wondering uh, and you see that title there, I, I don't care much uh, about titles. But it says, God's Judgment of Relief. That's inaccurate. Strike that if you really need an accurate title. Simply God's Righteous Judgment today. We're really going to be focusing, though we're reading verses 5 to 12, focusing on verses 6 to 10, that section in the middle. Uh, and that raises the question, what we'll be looking at next week? And at this point, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, We may likely come back, you'll notice that there's language in verse 5, and then again in verses 11 and 12, of what it means to be made worthy, or considered worthy, or counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And at this point, that's probably what we'll be looking at next time, uh, but who knows. So, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today, reading verses 5 through 12. And again, really focusing today in our study uh, just on verses 6 to 10. Uh, Let's go together to the Lord in prayer before we read his word together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are the judge of all the earth. We thank you that you indeed will do right. And we can trust in you. We know that you are good. Help us, O Lord, to love you and to look for your judgment and to wait for the revealing of the one into whose hands you have committed all judgment, even Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. We'll hear now God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading verses 5-12. through 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You know uh, as well as I do that the doctrine of the judgment of God is a perennially unpopular teaching. We could prove that, I suppose, if we wanted to. We could turn to the data, to the statistics, the surveys like the one from Pew Research that says that four out of 10 Americans reject the idea of divine judgment flat out, altogether. Or if you prefer, uh, instead of the statistics, we could cite the pithy quotes. Right? Those men like Ernest Hemingway who claimed that of course all thinking men are atheists. No judgment, uh, we would say. So we've got the surveys, we've we've got the anecdotes, we've got the data that that might pique your interest, but actually in the end, all of that only confirms what is already self-evident. The fact that there is no truth about God that the world loves to hate more than they love to hate his judgment. And you already know that. You know that if you have ever shared the gospel with anyone and you have come to the point of sharing the gospel with them where you have to tell them what you as a Christian actually believe will happen to them if they die apart from faith in Jesus Christ. You know that twinge of hesitation because you know how it will be received. This isn't new information. Everywhere, at all times, in every culture, the doctrine of divine judgment is among the first truths to be rejected when men and women reject the God of the Bible. But what is more surprising, perhaps, is the way that God's judgment often makes Christians uncomfortable, too. This passage that we read teaches God's judgment. There's no uncertainty about that. Verse 9 says that unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Among Paul's writings, this is one of the clearest examples of the reality of eternal conscious torment that awaits those who reject the Lord Jesus. And because of that, oftentimes when modern Christians read a passage like this, we become preoccupied. We become distracted with how we can defend this sort of thing, how we can justify this sort of thing. We begin to think about how we can explain God's judgment to our neighbors that that they won't find offensive or demeaning or, heaven forbid, judgmental. And so God's judgment becomes unpopular among Christians, too. Not because we disbelieve it, but because sometimes, if we're honest, we're tempted to be embarrassed by it. Now, For all the clarity that Paul gives us about the judgment of God in these verses, you'll notice that what he does not give us is an apology. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but. What he does not give us is a rationalization. He does not explain God's judgment in a way that attempts to make it more palatable. Quite the opposite. He gives these words to a suffering church in order to put steel into their faith, to reinforce their hope in the Lord Jesus who is coming, who will set things right at the last day. This is not something to be embarrassed by. It's not something that needs Christians to justify it. God's judgment is just. It is the absolute standard of perfect and complete righteousness. And if we understand it correctly, it is also something that should give us faith in God's goodness. So I want you to see three very good things about God's judgment today. The first thing that I want you to see, the first lesson from this text for us uh, today, is that when Christ returns, God's judgment will be revealed. When Christ returns, God's judgment will be revealed. There is a day coming, says Paul, when all of the afflictions and all of the unjust persecutions that the church faces will have become a thing of the past. There's a day coming when those who are in Christ will be vindicated, when they will receive the blessing of of peace and comfort that God has promised to all those who love Him. And on that same day, those who harm God's church, those who hate the Lord Jesus and His people, will receive from God's hand the return on their investment in sin and unbelief. The key teaching here is verses 6 and 7. Read them again. Paul says that God considers it just. That means that he considers it right or proper. The word there shares a meaning and a, and a root with the word in verse 5, the righteous judgment of God. God considers it right or righteous. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those, to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus Is revealed from heaven. There is a day coming, he's telling us, when Christ will bring with him the justice that God's people have been waiting for. But in saying that, we also point our our finger on what is one of the things that's so difficult about God's judgment. It is the fact that because it is waiting to be revealed in that day, we don't always see it now. This takes us back to verse 4. The language of affliction that Paul uses in verse 6 showed up there first. In fact, this is a continuation. Verses 3 through 10 in the Greek are one very long sentence in Paul's writings. He often does that. And so he's continuing the statement that he made before. You remember, perhaps, from our study last week, how Paul said that he boasted about the Thessalonians because of the way that they were holding fast. They holding fast. They had steadfastness of faith in the midst of all of their afflictions and the persecutions that they were enduring. And the Thessalonian church was a suffering church. They suffered unjustly. And Acts chapter 17 tells us some of the things that their suffering and their affliction and their persecution cost them from the very beginning. Faith in Jesus cost the church there a loss of their private property. Faith in Jesus made them the subject of mob rule and violence. Faith in Jesus singled them out for ridicule at the hands of their fellow citizens. Faith in Jesus brought slanderous accusations about the danger that they posed to the social order. It's true that Paul had warned them to expect these things... And yet they were still experiencing them. And as they did, it always comes uh, with that pain of suffering that accompanies oppression and unjust judgments. And so we recognize from the beginning that one of the main problems we sometimes have with God's judgment is that in the daily life of the church, it doesn't always show up. We can't always see it for the time being. This past Friday, just Two days ago in Chelmsford, where I live, a pastor from the Shepherd's Church, a faithful man by the name of Kendall Langford, reserved a room in the public library. He gathered for a pastor's story hour, and he read a book to a group of about 30 children uh, called Jesus and My Gender. Well, The next day, Saturday, the Lowell Sun front page headline said this, full of hatred and bigotry. Residents protest pastor story hour at Chelmsford Public Library. It's a small thing, really. It's not much in terms of what Christ has told his church that they will experience. It's just a little headline. It's just a a front page story in some nowhere newspaper. It's just a little bit of vitriol on the internet. It's just a little bit of name calling, but it qualifies... What Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, others will revile you. They will persecute you, and they will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So some of it is mild, some of it is severe, but between the name-calling in our own culture and the violence and the firebombing and the murders that still happen in many other places like Colombia that we pray for, week after week, Jesus warned His church that we will live through an age where God's judgment will sometimes remain unseen. A time when those who afflict the church will get away with it. When those who harm God's people will do it with impunity. But the promise of these verses is that a day is coming when the order of things is going to be put right. When those who have trusted in Christ will receive the crown of glory that the Lord has promised to them. And he says it will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels an interesting choice of language revealed. Most of the time, especially in Paul's writings in the New Testament, when Christ's second advent is spoken of, the language that is used is the language of visitation or presence. The Greek word there is parousia, his coming. The fact that he who is not here bodily now will one day come and be with us again bodily. He will return to be with his church. He will be present. But here the language is revelation. That word is apocalypsis. It is the unveiling of of a spiritual reality, a reality that is really real, but we can't see it yet. You remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6, where the great army of the Syrians surrounded the city of Dothan in an attempt to capture God's prophet. And in the morning, Elisha's servant uh, wakes up and he looks out outside the gates of the city and he sees nothing uh, but chariots and horsemen and he trembles in fear and he runs to Elisha and he says, what will we do? And Elisha prays. You remember? 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes to the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It was a different kind of revelation. Pulling back of the curtains on spiritual realities that were there all along, but remained unseen from where he was. We long for the same thing in terms of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came the first time in his first advent, he came in humiliation. He came with a glory that was incognito. And he was born of the virgin into humble circumstances. He who was very God of very God, he who was equal with God, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and being found in likeness of human flesh, humbled himself even to the point of death. He came the first time in humiliation, but the scripture tells us that when he comes again, he will come in glory. Unmistakable glory. He will come in exaltation. The reality is that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Yet the world sees him as an executed failure. That's what they see now. They see who won, who was was put aside... Even the church knows him as the one whose life was taken away by oppression and by judgment. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death. And it will be on the last day that the glory of his death and his resurrection will be seen for what it really is. By believers and unbelievers alike. And so it is with the judgment of God. We who are, are troubled now because in the afflictions of, of, of our flesh, we don't see what seems to be the judgment of God. And from where saints stand in history, the cry keeps going up to the Lord. How long will your people have to wait? But just because God's judgment comes at a different pace than we expect, we shouldn't begin to think that it's not coming at all. The message here is that there's a day coming. God says he will afflict those who afflict you. He will grant relief to those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ returns, together with his glory, God's judgment will be revealed. Well, that's the first lesson. The second is like it. It is that when Christ returns, God's judgment will be complete. God's judgment will be complete. Now when I say that God's judgment will be complete, I, I mean that God's judgment will be perfect. I mean that it will be absolute. I mean that it will be utterly and completely irreversible. In order to understand this portion of our text, we need to understand roughly verses 8 to 10 as an expansion of verses 6 and 7. Because there, uh, Paul spoke in generalities. He used the the language of affliction. Affliction can show up in in many ways, and we want to know what, what form will God's judgment take? Upon whom will it fall? Will God's judgment be temporary, or will it be eternal? Verses 8 to 10 give us the details. And as we look at at these verses, probably the the first thing we need to notice, the most important thing we need to see, is the basis upon which God's judgment will be determined. There is a division that's coming at the last day between those who find comfort in the Lord and those who are condemned by the Lord, and we want to know what makes the difference. Again, verses 6 and 7, Paul spoke of affliction. He spoke of afflicting those who... We're afflicting the church and if, if he left it there we might think that it comes down to a matter of who is the victim and who is the oppressor. Who is on top now and who will end up on top in the end but the Bible doesn't allow us to think of things in, in those simplistic man-centered ways. So again, unpacking this language of verses 6 and 7, in verse 8, Paul speaks of Christ coming to inflict vengeance, he says, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's two categories, but, but it really is the same group of people spoken of in two different ways. To reject knowledge of God is to reject the one whom he has sent. Those who do not know God are those who do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. On the other hand, verse 10 says that Christ will come on that day to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed. Again, two categories, but the same group. Those who are his holy ones, those who are his saints, are those who have believed in him. Those who know Him and have trusted in His salvation, those who have obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might say, He's giving us opposite ends of the judgment of God. Opposite sides of of the same coin, the central discriminating factor that separates those destined for wrath and those destined for glory. And at the last day, the question is, have you believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you obeyed the command to repent of your sins and to trust in the Lord's salvation? It's true that there was affliction and oppression and persecution happening in Thessalonica. It's true that those who were persecuting them were all too eager to silence the righteous through injustice. But we need to know that that oppression uh, and injustice and suffering by themselves don't make anybody qualified for the kingdom of God. Let's put it in different terms, perhaps, to understand that. When a sister in Christ that, that you have never met dies, abandoned and forgotten in a prison camp in North Korea, it is not her imprisonment or her abandonment that qualifies her to be a partaker of the saints and light. It is not the fact that she was oppressed that opens the gates of heaven to her. It is instead the spiritual gift of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true that faith in the Lord might make her willing to suffer for his name. Her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ might sustain her through through terrible oppression, might single her out for starvation by those who are running the camp. Her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ might sustain her through despair and incredible cruelty, but in the end, it's not her suffering that saves her, it's Jesus. And it's her connection by faith to Jesus that marks her out as an object of God's mercy rather than an object of wrath. The same works in the other direction. Right? When evil men oppose Christians, when they, when they stand against the advance of the gospel. When people burn down churches in the Congo, when they murder Bible translators in Colombia, it's not actually their opposition to Christians that condemns them, it is their opposition to Christ. Yes, their, their violence is a symptom of a deeper disease. Yes, it is the visible manifestation of hearts full of unbelief. But on the day that the sheep and the goats are separated, on the day that Christ's judgment comes, it will be on the basis of one question. Have you known Jesus? Have you believed in Him? I think this helps us to keep our understanding of judgment focused where it should be. That is, focused on the Lord and not on us. The reality is that there are, sadly, professing Christians who say and do foolish things in the public sphere and then claim persecution when their folly comes back to fall upon their own heads. You've seen it. Not everything that we call persecution is actually persecution, but there are some Christians who would like it to look that way. Sadly, there are also professing Christians who are inflicted with a kind of party spirit. They're counting on God's judgment to fall on anybody who doesn't vote like they do, anybody who doesn't lobby like they do, anybody who doesn't stand up in the public sphere for all the things and the causes that they care about. Sadly, there are professing Christians who expect God's judgment to fall along the familiar battle lines of all the culture wars, of whatever uh, thing, uh, cause du jour, we seem to be fighting. Now, it's true, isn't it, that those battle lines often reflect a deeper disease. And they often... Uh, show us a visible manifestation of an an inward heart full of unbelief, but it's also true that God's judgment isn't actually about a culture war. It's not about Christians coming out on top and and the oppressed becoming the victor. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. God's judgment is about the spiritual salvation of sinners to the Lord Jesus. And so when we consider the completion of, of Christ's judgment, one of the first things we need to understand is that it will be divided on the basis of faith in Jesus. That's it. That's the question. That is the dividing line, the the central factor. Have you believed in Jesus? The second thing we need to know about God's complete judgment is that it will be fixed for eternity. Verse 9 tells us that those who do not know God, those who don't obey the gospel, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Now here is one of those aspects of judgment that even contemporary Christians are are tempted to be shy about. It's the idea that not only does God punish sins, but He punishes them forever. Forever. We're shy about that because we know the reaction from the world around us. We know the way that, a, that an unbeliever or, or a skeptic might come to us and they'll latch onto that teaching and they'll say, You Bible believers are unhinged with this hell stuff. Right? How could that be fair? How could that be just for God to punish sins for eternity that took only a moment to commit? How could it possibly be right? For God to do that. And and in response to that, we have at least two answers. The first one probably isn't likely to be convincing to the skeptic, but it's where we have to begin, is with the fact that the scriptures clearly and unequivocally teach that God will do just that. There is no question if you're reading the New Testament honestly, if you're simply opening the Bible and saying, what does this teach me about what will happen to those who are without Christ at the end of days? It is conscious, it is eternal, it is torment. This is what scripture tells us. Verse 9 speaks of the punishment of eternal destruction. And in doing that, it envisions a sort of personal ruin that never stops. Imagine for a moment a, a once stately building. Marble carvings and stone fireplaces and cedar beams and anything that, that speaks opulence and, and stateliness to your mind, imagine it abandoned and, and dilapidated and given over to time. No matter how, how marvelous it used to be, it will, it will simply decay, little by little, brick by brick. It will begin to crumble and, the, and everything will cave in. And given enough time, it becomes a complete ruin. Well, that's the language of destruction. A sort of crumbling deterioration, a state of decay, or a process of undoing. But in the case of the wicked, it's an undoing that never comes to an end. It is a dehumanizing destruction that never stops. That's what scripture tells us. In the New Testament, 64 times, this same word, eternal, is applied to the gift of eternal life that believers receive in the presence of their Lord at the last day. It speaks of something that has no end. Gloriously so, it will never stop. To be in God's presence will be to, uh, to be conformed to His image more and more and more. To bask in His glory. To perfectly reflect His glory for all of eternity. And because the glory and the goodness of Christ never ceases, so also the eternal life of His people never ends. Eternal life is life that sustains life. It's peace that, that protects forever. But the opposite is true. This same eternal language is also applied to the destruction of the wicked. It's death that gives birth to perpetual death. It's hopelessness that has no bottom and no end and no escape forever. You notice that, that in this text, Paul doesn't use some of the language of other places in Scripture. He doesn't mention the the details that sometimes we get fixated on when we think or we talk about hell. He he doesn't talk about the agony of physical torment. He doesn't talk about the, the smoke that rises forever, the fire that's never quenched, or the worm that doesn't die. He's not given to sensationalism. That's not what he's trying to get across here. But he does picture God's judgment as a separation forever from the saving goodness of Jesus. It is eternity shut out from the only hope of endless souls. That's what he calls it. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the first answer to the question of God's eternal judgment is simply to affirm that the Bible teaches it. The second answer is to say that God's glory demands it. Of course, when When men scoff at the idea of eternal punishment, it really only shows how little they think of the God against whom our sins are committed. When we think that our our human sin should only be judged according to our our human standards, it happens when we believe that God, if he exists at all, is probably a lot like us. Maybe a little more powerful, but but pretty much a chum. On, On the same plane, same level as you and me, And there's an offense, and you say, oh, sorry about that. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Let it slide. And it really is a lowering of of God's glory and His eternal majesty. The reason that, that unbelieving men do not level with the fact that God's glory is everlasting, just as His justice is, and they suppress the truth that God's infinite lordship makes our human rebellion infinitely wicked. And so men reject the thought of eternal judgment because they've already rejected the God of eternity. They cannot imagine sins that take forever to atone for or to punish because they cannot imagine a God who is worth worshiping forever either. Well, that is the God with whom we have to do. Here's how Calvin put it. He said, from the glory of Christ we may infer how severe the punishment of our sin must be. For as his majesty is without end, so the death of the wicked will never cease. When we piece it together, we begin to get a, a pretty terrifying picture of the completion of God's judgment. We find that, that when Jesus returns, his judgment will be perfect. It will be absolute. It will be irreversible. And all those who have not believed in him will be separated from his glory and his goodness forever. They will bear the eternal punishment of continual destruction. They will become objects of wrath for eternity. And when Christ is revealed, the door of opportunity will have been closed. On the day that he returns, the chance for repentance and faith will be gone. And when Christ returns, God's judgment will be complete. If that's where our text ended, I don't think anybody would be surprised if even Christians find it a little uncomfortable. If even, even if we could acknowledge and agree that it's true, nobody would be surprised if it still makes us feel a little squeamish. That's not where the text ends. And so there is one more lesson to be learned. We've seen already that when Christ returns, God's judgment will be revealed that when Christ returns, God's judgment will be complete. Paul also tells us that when Christ returns, God's judgment will be glorious. God's judgment will be glorious. Now, glory is the recurring word that we can be tempted to overlook if we get fixated on all of this talk about eternal fire and torment and all of those things. We dare not miss the glory of Jesus in these verses. It is, according to our text, the very purpose for which God's judgment will come into contact with humanity the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says that it is separation from God's glory, from Christ's glory, that makes the punishment of the wicked so disastrous. In verse 10, we find that giving glory will become the primary occupation of God's people at the last day. Look again. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Those words, marveled at, in in verse 10, they're, they're Something of a synonym to that language of glorifying. Uh, To marvel at Jesus when he returns means that we will see him with wonder. It means that we will be overcome with the joy of being in his presence. It means that we will recognize at last that in him all of God's promises will have come to their completion and fulfillment. I've told uh, some of you before, but it bears repeating that In seminary, I had this professor, a theology professor by the name of of Dr. Anders, and he used to talk about how foolish it is when people think up all of the questions and all of the controversies that they can't wait to pose to God when they finally get the chance to ask Him. You hear people think about that sometimes, right? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. Why was it that my husband never believed the gospel? Why was it that my wife got that cancer? Why was it that my nephew died so young? And we think up all of these controversies that we think we're going to pose to the Lord someday, and my professor would laugh and say, no, you're not. When you get to heaven and you get to see the Lord face to face, you're going to forget how much all of those things matter to you now. I realize that from where you stand and where you sit, you can't imagine that they couldn't matter to you that much. But When you see him face to face, you find that he's the answer to all of your questions, all of your controversies, all of your waitings and your longings. When you see Him face to face, you'll be overcome by His glory. When you see Him face to face, you'll probably be face down before His throne. Arms outstretched in full-throated worship. When you get to heaven, you'll realize that you won't have time to care about all your questions because it's going to take every second of eternity just to take Him all in. Just to marvel at Him. That's the language here. When Christ returns, He's coming back to be marveled at. He's coming back to be glorified in His saints. And that, I think, is the most marvelous part of it all. The thing that is uh, that by His goodness and by His mercy, Jesus will make His people participants in His glory on the day of His judgment. Of course, there will be no mistaking the glory of the Lord on that day have spoken already about how Christ was seen when he came the first time in humility. We've heard already how Christ will come again. Hear what Philippians has to say to us. For God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he returns, there will be no more controversies. There will be no more debates. Do you think he exists? Do you not think he exists? I don't know. Well, my philosophy tells me this. Well, what's your worldview on that? How do you understand it? There will be no more of that. Because every eye will see Him, and every knee will bow before Him, and every tongue will confess His glory. His glory will be unmistakable. But what should almost stop our hearts with wonder is the joy of knowing that in that day, He will choose to make His glory known in us. Do you see what it says there? On the day when He comes to be glorified in His Saints, not by his saints not just that he gets the glory and we're standing around in some sense his glory is more glorious because of who his people have become it means that Jesus has something better for his people than eternal destruction it means that he has something better for his saints than final justice On the day of the Lord, Jesus will gather all those who have believed in him and he will make them objects of mercy rather than objects of wrath. He will reveal their salvation to the praise of his own glorious name. He will delight in the beauty and the splendor of the bride that he has prepared and is is presenting to himself. I think we catch a glimpse of what it means for Jesus to be glorified in his saints in Revelation chapter 5. Remember that passage. It's the one where John is, is ushered into the throne room of God in the highest of heavens, and he's weeping. He's weeping because the scroll of God's judgment has been presented, and there's no one in all creation who has the power to unlock it to set it into place, to actually bring to completion God's plan for creation that he has made. And he begins to weep because nobody can bring God's judgment to completion. In the midst of his tears, one of the elders in heaven points him in the direction of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who has conquered. And you remember he turns and what does he see? But the lamb standing as though he had been slain. And the lamb goes and takes the scroll from the hand of him who's seated on the throne. When he takes the scroll, when he begins to open God's judgment, the elders and the creatures and all the living beings in heaven fall down and they sing. And You remember what they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Do You hear it. Worthy are you they will sing because of what you did in them. Paul says when he comes he's coming to be glorified in his people. And they will shine like a mirror, perfectly polished. They will reflect nothing but the glory of God's work in them through Christ Jesus. It's a reminder of how good God's judgment is. The kind of thing worth waiting for. When Jesus returns, God's judgment will be revealed. God's judgment will be complete. And Praise the Lord for the salvation of his saints. God's judgment will be glorious. I hope you know him today. If you do know him, press on in knowing him. Continue to trust in him. Continue to wait for his judgment to come. And if you've not trusted in him, I urge you to do that. That is the only question on the exam at the last day? Have you believed in him? Let's pray together. O glorious Lord and God, we thank you for Christ our Savior, given for the salvation of all of your elect. We pray that through him you would gather your people to yourself, that you would cause his word of gospel to be glorious and to be received by all those who long for him. O oh Lord, give us hearts that long for him. Give us hearts that believe your word and trust in you and find life in his name, we pray in his name. Amen.